the most interesting radio show on planet Earth. The Weekend Variety Wireless on Radio Live. Good evening, everybody. Welcome along. Lovely to be back. Thank you very much, Ryan, for covering while I was away over the last couple of weeks. Had a fabulous time. So the next two shows are going to be four hourly expositions of what I did in the holidays. There'll be a slideshow. Okay, no, I wouldn't do that to you. I might try, actually. Oh, I, I will try. Uh, one little thing. Um, I spent a little bit of time in Dunedin, saw Baltus Space. That was fun. It was marvellous. Don't worry about the sound system. It was all great. Don't worry, Nick. Okay, tomorrow night, hear the story of the Museum of Natural Mystery. It's relatively new. It started in Dunedin. It's run by a cat by the name of Bruce Mahalski, and he's fun. And I've got a couple other yeah, interesting paranormal things. So I'm interested in ghosts, uh, poltergeists particularly. Mm-hmm. You're a subscriber that they exist? Yeah, yeah. I, I don't think there's any doubt um, that they exist. I think there's a lot of objective evidence that poltergeists exist. By that I mean that invisible agents sometimes move objects. And I have had an experience with this myself. And there is the artefact in the museum here of oh. the clay head that was uh, damaged by a poltergeist at Mvlocky Art School in Wellington where I used to work. No! Oh, a double ooh from me. That's tomorrow night after 9.30-ish. Okay, coming up tonight, where is the Endeavour? The Endeavour, the ship that uh, Captain Cook took around the world. Nobody really cared about it after he did that. Amazing, isn't it? Uh, the story of that and where it lies today. John McChrystal of Shipwreck Tales is back to tell us all about it. Oh, and we're slowly filling up the Shipwreck Tales archive. A few got uh, jettisoned overboard. We are next to lasty pops of making it entirely complete. I forget what the um, fancy word for next to lasty pops is. That will do, I think you understand. Tonight, the Mikhail Lermontov. The ship lies at the bottom of the sea in the Marlborough Sounds. Oh dear, oh dear, oh dear. And it does seem like a good Kiwi made a very, very bad mistake. They sailed very close to Anakakata Bay, where a family that had lived there for around 20 years watched it sail by and was so impressed they even radioed the bridge to say, Christ, that looks amazing. Ship that size, that close in. Never seen that before. And they wished Jamison, who was answering this call, a very safe and pleasant journey. Jamison seems to have made an impulsive decision to steer between Cape Jackson, which is part of the mainland and this little offshore rock which has a beacon on it called Jackson's Head Beacon. Big mistake. All right. Wigan Variety Wireless, as usual, the first hour dedicated to sciencey stuff, Grant Christie and astronomy later this hour. But next up, Rochelle Constantine, marine biologist. Have you ever wondered, what do whales drink? You're tuned in to the Weekend Variety Wireless. Science report today, Auckland University marine biologist Rochelle Constantine and specialist subject answering questions. Um, <laughs> it, we're we're going to go through some fun facts and some sad ones today. G'day Rochelle. Hello. Uh, okay, I've got a question about whales. Whales, one of your specialist subjects. 
cetaceans, shall we say. Yeah, that inc- because, includes them all. Right, that's porpoises and, and delphinidae. Yeah. Okay, they're mammals. They that, are. That's the thing that we learn at school early on. Not fish, mammals. Um, they have milk for their young, warm-blooded. But we have um, stories of castaways on the ocean and you can't drink the salt water you die you go mad so where how do whales drink what do they drink what do, can they drink salt water what's the deal well they don't um, head out and get a glass of water like we do they actually get their fresh water from their food so water is a byproduct of metabolizing food so along with fats carbohydrates as they those are metabolized water comes out of it so actually whales and dolphins all of the cetaceans uh, all in water mammals get their water that they require to live uh, from directly from their food so they don't drink water they they take in salt water of course but where um, they're highly specialized or their kidneys are highly specialized is is, um, they have a kidney very much like ours uh, and it's a little bit longer and slimmer but the basic function and, and processes and makeup of it is exactly the same as in all mammals the thing with cetaceans um, and in fact all marine mammals is they when they have that point of uh, filtering their uh, plasma, the you know, blood particles through the kidneys to get rid of wastes, in this case it's salt waste, mm. they have the normal process uh, through the glomerulus, which removes the salts and various byproducts. But then they have these very long, what are called loops of Henle. So they're very, very long, but it's sort of like pipe work, you know, in the kidneys. So this long ducting. Just as an aside, I love the names of these organelles, loops oh, of Henle. And Ampule of Lorenzini. Oh, yeah, Crips yes. of Lieberkuhn. Oh, I love that one. That's yes, my favourite. Yeah. But anyway, loops of Henley. So, uh, yeah, so they have, uh, compared to us, they have these very long loops of Henley. And it's in there that they absorb as much water, fresh water, back out of the, the products that are going through their kidneys. So we, we you know, we... We we a lot, you know, right. uh, compared to to whales and dolphins, they actually don't um, uh, excrete, you know, urine the same way that we do, and in the same amounts. Um, so the only uh, do they place do wheeze? Do they have they a wheeze, wheeze hole? Yep, they do wheeze. They've got they've got a wee hole just the same as us. Okay, uh, they they do. But what they've um, they've only been able to actually measure this in in captive. Uh, pinnipeds and, and seals because they you know they come out on the yeah. uh, um, out on the platform and they can measure all of these bits and pieces and what they found is they they actually excrete uh, urine that's about two and a half times as salty uh, uh, more salty than the the seawater surrounding ah. so it's highly concentrated salt urine you'd that have they to otherwise you wouldn't be winning in this fight that's against right, the salt yeah. and so they like I said you know where they win most is by this extra sort of process of extracting water at, out of the urine in the kidneys, so those specialised kidneys. Right. And, uh, and that's how they, they manage to maintain that, that sort of balance and get enough fresh water to survive. Right. Mm. So is their wheeze a little bit more like um, ours after you may have run a marathon while drinking a bottle of vodka? Exactly. Yeah, yeah. It's not pretty. Yeah. We're quite, kind of thirsty animals, aren't we? Which, well, we are. I suppose, well, obviously in comparison with the cetaceans and seals and things, mm. um, wasteful. Yeah, we, we are. I mean, I guess 
well, we do what we need to do to make our systems work. Right, and so right. all animals, you know, evolve to the, the place that they, they live. And I was having a, a read around because I was thinking, you know, about other marine animals, so fish, obviously, clearly not marine mammals, but have a, a quite a different system. So fish have this constant battle, depending on whether they're in the salt water or the fresh water, they've got this constant battle where um, – uh, with osmosis, so that's where you know uh, movement from a high a high concentration to a low concentration. So yeah. in the ocean, a fish has uh, more fresh water in it than the ocean does. So the ocean is more salty. So the o- and because fish are quite you know thin skinned they've got gills and all of these you know, membranes exposed to the the marine environment. The water is constantly basically getting sucked out of fish. So f- um, saltwater fish actually are constantly taking in water. They get water that they they use for their metabolic processes from their food, but they're actually taking in um, salt water as well. And what they're trying to do is just get as much um, fresh water as they can through their systems uh, as possible. So they they stay on top of the ocean that's sucking all of this fresh water out of their body. Has they got a special organ that does that? Uh, so they've they've got a kidney. They've okay. got yeah, long skinny kidneys are quite different to ours but those are working overtime to get as much um, fresh water maintained within their system and right. excrete super super high concentrations of salt but they also excrete um, urine through their gills ah. yeah so they actually get rid of it through through their gills which is neat and whereas those um, uh, fish that are in freshwater have the opposite problem because the freshwater environment is uh, less salty than the fish is because mm. you know they're it's about a third, you know, saltier. And uh, so the freshwater is trying to come into the bodies of fish. So basically what they just do is they're constantly peeing. So freshwater fish are constantly excreting um, uh, um, fresh water to just try and not explode because they're absorbing. Yeah, so it's, and when you think of something like a salmon that's in the ocean and then mm-hmm. swims up the river. Oh, yeah, why doesn't it explode with fresh water? Because they just know what to do. I mean, really? Yeah, I, that whole sort of. White bait must be the same. Exactly. Or all of those, you know, fish that that have these sort of two different life stages, their their whole physiology has to switch on to a whole new mode, and they do it. It's they, their body just knows what to do, and I love I love those sort of adaptations. So yeah, yeah, it stops them from becoming this withered husk of a fish in the ocean, and and then swim up the stream. It stops them from just exploding because they just turn into a big. That's you know, a hell of a, it's like a complete new operating system, isn't it? And uh, they yeah. managed to evolve both. Yeah, that's to right. Cope. Yeah, and we're lousy. I mean, you think we just sit in the bath for too long and look what happens yeah. to us. You know, just, yeah. yeah, that's right. So, yeah. Um, a fun salt fact. How much salt is there on the earth in well, the if, oceans? Yeah, if you took all of the, the ocean, the salt in the oceans and you took all of the water away and just had salt, cover, covering the terrestrial mass on our planet, 42 metres deep. There's a lot of salt in the sea. That is a lot of yeah. salt. 42 metres yeah. Yeah. deep, yeah. solid salt. Yeah. But there's not a lot of land. Remember, we're mostly planet ocean. There's All right, over yeah, we start of with two thirds. Some of it's deep. Yeah, yeah, quite deep. You know, yeah. down to eleven k's more. Yeah. Oh, big news this week. Maybe you can tell us what's going on. We saw someone uh, being hit by an octopus, flung by a seal. <laughs> Who can honestly say that that hasn't happened to them? Um, <laughs> honestly, I laughed. <laughs> what's going on here? Uh, so down in Kaikoura, I uh, was lucky to work um, on the dusky dolphins for many years down in Kaikoura, and uh, we'd often sit on top of the hill at Goose Bay there, and you know regularly enough that you sort of stopped really looking at it these are uh, these 
big seals, mostly males, would uh, New Zealand fur seals would come along, fossick around in the rocks around the edge, and every now and then they'd come up with this really large octopus. And what they do is they, you know, I mean, can you imagine, they're, they're big animals. These aren't just little tiny hold-in-your-hand octopus. These are big ones. So you can imagine they've just got like tentacles everywhere, probably almost biting at, sucking onto the seal. And what the seals do is they somehow manage to just flick their heads around and they get hold of a tentacle and then they flick their head really quickly and they rip off the tentacle. The force of that and the weight of the body of the, the octopus is just basic physics, laws right. of physics, just rips the tentacle off. And then you'll see the seal sort of chucking its head back and swallowing it down like a giant spaghetti strand as it you know, goes into its mouth. And then the seal would swim around, go pick up the octopus again and then grab another tentacle and fling its head. And I, I mean, over the course of about... 15, Knowing it's minutes. got seven to go. Yeah, it's right. I don't know if they count, <laughs> but it gets a little less sticky every time it does it. Right. And so, you know, and I'm we never saw a sort of, I think the, the I saw it down to three tentacles and that was all the octopus had and they're pretty spent by oh, that time. They're pretty oh. damaged. So I'm sure the seal uh, eats it after that. So um, that, that footage that we saw, that, that dude was just in the either wrong place, wrong time, or right place, right time. But right. it was very funny. Viewing. It wasn't a piece of uh, interspecies vengeance. No, no, it was. It didn't. One of the things that made me sort of, you know, roll my eyes was, oh, you know, man attacked. Oh. <laughs> like, I'm like, nah, nah. I, I was actually quite curious if the octopus had been a little more lively and if it had actually got hold of the guy, what mm. would have happened next? That would have been quite funny to watch. Yeah, yes. Yeah. All right, some sad news for all. Um, news, world news actually, it made the headlines about this week about PCBs in the ocean and how their effect on killer whales, shall we say. Mm. Um, what's the deal with this and should we be worried? Yeah, so um, PCBs are polychlorinated biphenyls. They were sort of uh, created in the early 20s, but they were particularly popular sort of through the mid-1900s, um, used for all kinds of things. Um, they're, a, uh, they're a man-made chemical. They have uh, a very long, uh, persistent time within our environment and they're a non-natural product so our environment doesn't know how to break them down so they persist so you we might be done with them put them in landfill or throw objects away that have pcbs in them whatever it might be um and some countries have done a really good job of trying to manage these because they are they're incredibly toxic waste and the reason why they're a problem in nature is that they are fat-loving so they will uh, be drawn to fats which most all animals in, mm. on our planet have fats in them. So uh, in particular for things like um, marine mammals, and in this case killer whales, what happens is these PCBs, um, they, they stay persistent in the marine environment, freshwater environment, on land, like nothing degrades them. It's, it's a really big problem. And so the study uh, was done by a number of um, colleagues of mine actually in Europe. And what they looked at is the level of these PCBs and how they affect, are affecting killer whales. Now, we've known for a long time in marine mammal land that PCBs cause um, immunosuppression, so it's a, a suppressed immune system, and they also cause infertility in marine mammals. Mm -hmm. So they, um, and f because marine mammals, especially the, the dolphins, you know, those sort of top-order feeders, they will... Um, uh, bioaccumulate these in their, their fats. And the further up the food chain you get, that's, the more higher the concentration. That's right. So you might have some PCBs, say, 
in the sand and then a crab eats that, a fish eats that crab, a bigger fish eats that fish and then a dolphin eats that fish and so all of those accumulated toxins which were just in the sediment to start with move up more and more and more and they get more and more pronounced as you move up the food chain so something at the very top of the food chain like a killer whale is going to get more than its fair share. Now they'll store these in their blubber and in particular if the levels get too high, they can actually cause the animals to not be able to reproduce. In the case where they can and do reproduce, what happens is the mother feeding her calf will offload her burden of PCBs and her fat through her milk to oh, her first offspring. Stuffed so, again. Yeah, so the first offspring in particular, but it... Others, you know, um, get a certain load as well from their mum because she has to mobilise fat to feed her calf. Um, they they get hit with this massive burden of PCBs. So right from the get go, they're getting a toxic load in their milk. How is it affecting the population? And so, is it here as well? Yeah, so it's a really big problem. So what they've they've looked at a, a global, you know, where good data exists on PCBs, and they've found Japan, Brazil, um, parts of Europe, you know, a variety of parts around the world. That have these high burdens of um, PCBs within their ocean systems, in the soils, sediments. They haven't done anything to try and trap them. That these uh, killer whales have got such high loads that it's making them infertile um, and it's making their immune system not work. And in the case in Scotland, for example, uh, the burden they think is is one of the primary contributors to the decline in population. I think they said there's about eight killer whales and left in this population. And no record of a calf, uh, an orca calf for five years. Yeah, that's right. That's right. You know, and it's a really big it's a really big concern. And, and their modelling predicted that in these areas where there's high PCB burdens, that um, within about 50 years, uh, that we may not you know, have these, these populations at all. And, and when you look globally, it's about give or take 50% of the world's populations yeah. of killer whales. Places like Antarctica, where they're you know, reasonably burden-free, those populations will do well. So in New Zealand, what is this, you know, how does this translate to New Zealand? So um, work that's been done on the toxin levels in, in killer whales in New Zealand waters, they do carry some uh, toxin load, things like DDT, some of those chemicals that we've used, um, but those levels of PCB, PCE, which were, which, you know, um, are are not or barely detectable in New Zealand. We are lucky that we haven't had a huge, highly industrial, um, you know, problem here. It's not zero. Mm. It's certainly not zero, and they are detectable because killer whales are often feeding coastally and in, you know, those those areas where it comes off the land. But this is a really big lesson, and be careful what we make because nature can't always work it out. Um, right, and this yeah. is a bad one. That this accumulates. is a really bad one. It's a really big concern. Mercury does the same, doesn't it? Yeah, well, mercury yeah. as well. And the thing too is that you know PCBs don't just affect killer whales; and they affect us. As well. Right, we're a top predator. Yeah, that's right. We're a top predator. And, you know, so they're, you know, I think those places like in the United States where they banned the use of them probably 30 years ago now, 20 or 30 years ago, um, and they've made a real big attempt to clean up sites where they knew there'd been, you know, PCB uh, product had been d um, dumped, and they've worked really hard to clean those up. That's what needs to happen. But Europe didn't do that, and now okay. they're paying the price. Marine biologist Rochelle Constantine, thank you very much for Science Report this week. And coming up, all the news of astronomy and this amazing Ryugu effort with these little things that look like you can buy at PB Tech being thrown at an asteroid.
You're tuned in. To Graham Hill's Weekend Variety Wireless on Radio Live. Astronomy Today with Dr. Grant Christie. Grant Christie just made it down from the 57th floor of the uh, West Wing of Media Works, uh, where we keep the observatory. How's it going there? I'm going well. <laughs> Have a good holiday. Oh, yeah, it was fabulous. And thank you very much to Ryan for covering over the last couple of weeks. I'm sure he was a bunch of fun. He is always great. Steady on. Okay. <laughs> if you go to the Weekend Variety Wireless webpage, we'll have some relevant links to what we're talking about uh, with regards astronomy this evening with Grant Christie. Um, the spectrum of the sun's light is an interesting picture. It looks like uh, Mondrian on acid, but uh, it's just splitting up all the light. We isn't Just look at a rainbow. Case that's, closed. That's right. There's, that's the spectrum. You can put it through a little... Uh prism or something like that, light shining through a window like uh. Isaac Newton did to sort of realise that light wasn't just, you know, it could be broken up into primary colours. Mm -hmm. And uh, the way they've displayed that spectrum there, it's actually a very long spectrum. Mm. Uh, and so instead of having it stretching miles along a page, which mm. you can't really do, they've broken it up and it's all wrapped around. So you can see it starts off at the... the uh, um, the low energy at the top, um, which is the red, infrared part of the spectrum, and then it winds down right to the bottom and ends up as the uh, the high energy um, ultraviolet and uh, mm. uh, high energy end of the spectrum. So yeah, so stuff we can't see, stuff our eyes aren't sensitive to. So our eyes have evolved, and most of the creatures on Earth have evolved to see um, for our our peak vision to be aligned with the sort of peak light colour of the, the sun's uh, spectrum. So that's in the yellow-green part of the spectrum. Mm -hmm. um, obviously there are creatures that see it night and using infrared and other things, but they're, they're sort of kind of creepy oh. and weird. But yeah. but uh, people that live in, or creatures that live out in the daylight uh, uh, have eyes that are tuned for that and think things like chlorophyll and everything. Yeah. But uh, the interesting thing is that, uh, you know, not all the light that sun produces gets to us and you get these little... Um, gaps in the spectrum. They, the, the, the little article talks about missing light from the sun, and it's so. Why? Why did you get those little black bands? And they're the quite spectrum? clear, aren't they? It looks like a Very DNA clear. test. Yeah, it's been known. You know, for, they've been sort of identified and mapped since the early 1800s, um, but they weren't really. It wasn't understood. Uh, until the 20th century in detail of what these lines were and what right. they meant. You needed quantum theory to before you could understand that in detail but but people knew that basically the, um, the, the, the what we're seeing there is basically the a DNA map of our Sun uh -huh. and every star has its own map not all stars are the same but we can put them in broad categories and our Sun uh, has you know particular elements and so if you put a uh, particular atoms into a, a spectroscope and you can look at the what light they absorb you can relate those bands in the sun spectrum to light of elements in the laboratory so that was the first thing they started to do they started to see this sort of like they could put us you could get some table salt and burn it in a flame and look at the spectrum of that orange flame that burning salt produces and they could see lines in the spectrum. This was even, you know, back in the sort of 19th century. Yeah. Um, and then 
they could map, they, they realized that those patterns of lines they see in the laboratory, hey, these match the ones we see in the sun. And so they were able to realize that the lines in the sun spectrum related to actual elements that they could identify on Earth. Now, there are some lines in the sun spectrum that have never been identified with anything yet. We don't, there's some sort of um, molecules or something like that that are an unusual combination and nobody's quite figured out what, which Really? One produce those lines, but the vast majority are known and mapped. Uh, and uh, the a temperature, the sun with a temperature around about six thousand Celsius, has uh, has quite a lot of uh, lines in it. If if you heat the star up a lot more than that, you only get uh, you get far fewer lines in the spectrum. And if you cool a star down, like it's a sort of red giant or something like that, maybe more like 3,000 degrees, mm. then you suddenly start seeing the lines of molecules, not atoms. You start seeing all the molecules turning up and you get blanketing of the lines because the molecules have oh. pro spectrum produce far more lines than a single atom. So when you put salt on a flame and you get the yellow look... Is that the sodium or the chloride that's, or both? Well, that's a, well. I understood it was the light of sodium, that yeah. orangey colour. I'm not a spectroscopist, I must okay. admit. But, uh, so basically, uh, astronomers can figure, by looking at the spectrum of starlight, and it's a huge part of astronomy, you need big telescopes usually because you're spreading the light out, uh, and so you need to gather a lot of it to, in order to do that. But big telescopes uh, can do it, and astronomers who are specialists in this area can tell you a great deal about the, the temperature of the star and the pressures in its atmosphere and mm. what elements it's made of uh, from, uh, from, from just by looking at the spectrum. And it's a, In New Zealand, the only telescope that does that um, is the one-metre telescope at Mount John mm -hmm. uh, Observatory in, uh, near Tekapo. And they've got a very sophisticated, world-class spectroscope that goes on that telescope, and they can do a lot of detailed analysis of stars. So this using is that an spectroscope. On, so, but not all these gaps have been accounted for, or, the, or these, right. these um, indicators. We don't know what's what's making it. That's yes. a really local, long-lived mystery, isn't it? Well, it is. I, I I don't know enough about the sort of the spectra at that level. Uh, I mean, the vast majority are known, but there will be sort of some unusual species, and, and so you get some elements, like you can get elements like uranium, for example, that could have a huge number of electrons, and the number of uh, possible energy states those electrons can be in is enormous, so there's probably uh. sort of unusual lines. Um, there's a bunch of lines that astronomers find in the um, in, in gaseous nebulae, and they're called forbidden lines. What? They were called forbidden lines because they weren't supposed to occur, but they do occur in the deep vacuum of space. So that... Uh, very improbable things can happen when you've got many, many light years, uh, thousands of light years, uh, potentially, uh, of space, empty space, and light travelling through it. So you can get these um, unusual, you know, rare lines that you can't actually reproduce on Earth easily because we can't create those sort of conditions. Wow. So they, they have these historical names like forbidden lines. People when the physicists first saw these lines in spectrum say well how on earth can you make that? What on earth is doing that? And it took them a quite a long time to figure out what those so-called forbidden lines really were. They were related to, back to real atoms and understood it eventually. But. Okay. 
Um, so you can have a look at that picture. It's the most detailed of a spectrum you could imagine. Uh, Isaac Newton would have gone, wow, that's a bit better than mine at home. <laughs> <laughs> Although I, I shan't you diminish. You might have got motivated and discovered quantum mechanics. Probably. <laughs> uh, he could do amazing stuff just by sitting down in his bedroom, couldn't he? Uh, all right. Now, there's also a link here to the astronomy sound of the month. There's the famous astronomy picture of the day. Uh, we feature a few of those. Go there at once. Astronomy picture of the day. If you haven't seen that, um, great I, website. you'll probably put it in your favourites if you have any interest in that at all. It's great, and the explanations are fun too. But here's one about sounds. There is no sound in space. Uh, so what's going on? As far as you, this, this web page, what's going on? The one about the supernovae? Oh, we can do this. No, we'll leave the supernovae one. Here's a sound. I can okay. play. This is apparently the sun. Right, well, I, I would understand that to be the conversion of the vibrations of the sun converted into audible sound waves. Right. So what uh, they discovered, uh, it's... it's um, uh, it's basically the, the, the way sort of a, the um, geophysicists can tell us what's inside the Earth by looking at earthquakes and how they bounce around inside. The same sort of waves get propagated inside stars as well, and by and and they actually show up on the outside of the the stars and the sun as as sort of the little subtle movements in the surface, mm -hmm. and they can measure that that vibration now. It's a big part of astronomy because it's an important way to probe what the interior of stars is really doing. Um, and so by measuring the sort of acoustical spectrum of the of these waves, you can actually get uh, a um, uh, a picture of it's it's like X-raying the interior of a star. You can do that, and the, you know there's um, uh, it's a big part of modern astronomy. It's difficult mm -hmm. to do. You need really big uh, telescopes and spectrographs and stuff like that to do it. But mm. uh, so it's not something we've ever done. But um, it's uh, an important probe. So I think that that's what they're looking okay. at these waves and converting them into a sound. Yeah. Uh, there are some. These are things uh, that are taken from measurements in space, transferred into uh, something that is hearable. Uh, yes. by our ears and I quite like the fast radio bursts because they're kind of obvious a fast radio burst is a very mysterious thing isn't it yes it's still uh, well they've got sort of some idea of what the what's causing and that's narrowed down in recent years but mm. they, they, they you know 10 years ago they were a total mystery okay here's a, a few of them um, each going Nyoink. You can vote for it for Bird of the Year. Right, that's that's the collection of um, fast radio bursts. Right, so these are sort of a, an enormously powerful explosions that are occurring out in the cosmos, not in our galaxy, the very distant galaxies in many cases. They were so brief and fleeting that people thought they were just faults with radio telescopes, but we now know they're not. Uh, and they're frustratingly hard to study because they just occur at random, unless your telescope happens to be pointing at that place. It's uh, very hard to, you know, and they only last like a short time. Some mm. of them only, the short radio bursts 
only last a few seconds mm -hmm. and there's other ones that last up to sort of maybe might run out out to longer than that you know okay. about sort of uh, more like sort of um 30 seconds or something like that so they and they are related to what's happening at sort of black holes and neutron stars at high energy physics um but uh the large um, very l large telescope array that they're building uh, for radio telescope uh, in South Africa is going to have the capability of monitoring huge chunks of sky and recording these. I mean, they, we know they must be curing at an enormous rate many, many times a day, but unless your telescope happens to be pointing at one at the time, astronomers can't get it. And Are they yet, going to have a better field of view? It's going to have a huge field of view and it'll be able to hoover them up from all over the sky. Awesome. So, yeah. I think the amusing thing with that was uh, it was the sum total of all that had been um, discovered. Yeah, well, it was Four, only a 14 handful. or something. Yeah, that's right. And, uh, you know, it's, it's going to find hugely increased numbers of them. Yeah. Okay. Uh, later on, we will hear uh, Oasis um, along with the discoveries of supernovae since the 1950s, which is <laughs> an amusing thing. We'll do that at the end because yeah, it's quite sure. fun. Uh, also from the Astronomy audio of the month and the link is on the Weekend Variety Wireless webpage. All right, big news. It's just an astounding achievement, I reckon, when you think about it. Getting this thing to Ryugu and then dropping off these little pieces of equipment. Yeah. Um, I don't, I've, tried, I've tried just going to the PB Tech um, <laughs> website and delivery, Ryugu. Yeah. And then they go, no, it's beyond us. Yeah. Uh, so, they've done amazing stuff yeah, getting well, these things on. Yeah, they've really done well. And uh, the, uh, so the, 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 basically the mother craft, if you like, uh, Hayabusa 2, was uh, brought down uh, they, when they did this first attempt at landing. They, they'd done some trials with the spacecraft, bringing it down, making sure they could do it, control it, bring it back again, because they have to get the spacecraft turning around the asteroid at exactly the same speed the asteroid's rotating, because they don't want to, so that all those sort of, there's a lot of things going on there. Uh. Um, I mean, things like the, the solar wind pushes satellites around so you, you've really it's a very delicate maneuver and then uh, they've got a lovely picture of it approaching the surface because the sun's directly behind the spacecraft during this maneuver and you can see the shadow of the spacecraft on the surface isn't that lovely and this object's around about a kilometre across, but it's it's not quite like taking a sort of a going to a local hill near yourself and sort of say, well, that's about a kilometre across. I get some idea of the size. That hill will have a lot more mass in it than the asteroid because the asteroid isn't compacted. I mean, it's just basically a rubble pile. Right. So it's more like a pile of shingle right. and stuff, and there's probably voids inside it as well. Right. So it's not uh, nowhere near as dense as a, like going and looking at Mount Eden or something like that. Right, so Mount Eden would have, um, or, or a similar-sized hill, would have more gravity if you, you weren't yes. out there than this thing it's would. essentially would. So the, these this sort of kilometre ball of, of um, basically you know, shingle and dust and stuff that's just being loosely held margarita it doesn't have a you know it's not super compacted like it's not like a rock um, no. essentially but it, it does take hits you can see the sort of impact sites where it comes in and things have gone plop yeah. into it um, as well over time but uh, yeah so it's a very delicate maneuver to bring it in and the spacecraft came in and then they released this um, the, these two little landers which we'll just call 
um, 1A and 1B. Yep. Um, and they have attempted this before in a previous mission, but it didn't quite work. But they anyway, they got them down. They just gently came down onto the surface of the asteroid. And uh, so they touch down, and they, they can just kind of sit there, and then they jump. So they're solar-powered, so they, they'll keep doing this for quite a while. Um, they didn't hear from them for a while and weren't too sure, but they're both working. Um, and so they sit there on the surface, and they've got a little springy thing that uh, just release a little spring. You don't need much of a spring to do a jump, like 15 feet or you know, three or four metres. You don't want much of a spring. No, you don't. You end you're, up coming back to Earth. Yeah, that's right, exactly, <laughs> which is sort of what happened on their last mission. Yeah. But anyway, so, yeah, so these things are just doing a little jump. Uh, the tiny gravity of the asteroid pulls them back down again in the meantime they take pictures and they're not doing a huge amount of stuff it's really just testing that you can actually do this it's why a, is it jumping why uh, they, they just jump? want to move to different places they just okay. want to bounce around on the surface of this thing and they'll keep doing that for you know as long as the soul well basically they're, they're solar powered so that so long as they're still getting the sunlight which they will of course if, every time the thing turns around uh-huh. um, so they're not going to lose power that and so they'll stay there till Hayabusa leaves, okay. basically, and all the or runs out of uh, power. Right. And so, but there's one that's going to get some stuff and bring it back to Earth. Yeah. So then there's another one that's uh, they're going to be releasing later. So there's a series of these things. It's a bit hard to sort of get your head around them all. Yeah. Um. So I was surprised. I had no idea they had three toys to plonk on the. Yeah. Yeah. Thing. So they've got a German one that's called Mascot, and I think next month they're going to try to deploy that and see what it does. Um, Japanese and Germans working back together yep, again. Yeah, it's all very international. And there's another one called Rover 2, which is also going to... Um, <laughs> terrible thing to say, Graham. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, so uh, there's there's going to be a number of attempts to get things. The final piece, though, the the ultimate aim of this is to bring a chunk, a piece of the sample of the surface of this object, mm. this uh, little asteroid, back to Earth. It's a very primitive asteroid... Um, and uh, thought to have sort of predated most of the solar system formation or very early in the solar system. So it'll be a, you know, we've never had such a, a, a decent chunk of such um, unaltered material from the early solar system before. So and it makes it back to Earth and it's packet okay. It'll be the most valuable stuff to probably ever land. Well, you know, they'll be studying it for decades. Yeah. You know, this, you know, and, and sort of a, the people who do this sort of research on that material almost take it apart atom by atom you can t- mm. tell enormous amounts about it and it's um it's age and uh how it formed yeah and just a reminder we've got that other funny crawly th- thing that bounced on the other asteroid as well gosh it's, it hasn't been long has it now we've already leaving junk on these things yes right yeah what was that one that looked like a a, a duck um, a duck that you know in the bath there was that asteroid that looked like a duck and we they landed that thing on it. And oh yeah, you got that lost. was a comet. Sorry, that, sorry, that, Com- yeah, comet. Yeah, so now I'm with you. Yeah, that, yeah. that was the, uh, the the comet that the um, uh, ESA's project uh, to uh, send there, um, and then they sort of dropped the lander down and lost the lander. It sort of mm. didn't quite. Yeah, 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 the rubber okay. duck. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm it's just amazing to think. Yeah, just, just I'm back of the class. It's not, not enough scientific not terminology for me. It's a damn comet. Okay, now opportunity. That's another thing that we've got on another 
uh, body in the solar system, Mars, famously, and waiting and waiting and waiting. Is it going to come back to life? It doesn't look good at the moment. At the moment, uh, the sky's cleared around uh, opportunity. So, and in fact, uh, the the main only news they, they haven't had any peep out of it. But the and they continue to listen to for a mm. signal from it. Um, but they can see it from space. So it's Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter, one of their top uh, orbiting satellites with a very powerful camera, has imaged it. I mean, it just looks like a single pixel on the ground, but they know that it's opportunity. Mm. Uh, and it, the sky's clear over it. It's only cleared relatively recently, so let's give the thing a break and hopefully it'll sort of recharge its batteries. They wouldn't mind having a bit of wind because wind, if, if wind comes up there, it can blow the sort of uh, the dust off its panels and makes the panels more effective. So, um, but I think, uh, you know, it's, I'll be surprised if, if it comes back to life, but I mean, it would be wonderful if it did. It would be a great story. The greater surprise is that it lasted in a functioning <laughs> condition for 14 years. Yeah, exactly. That is a much greater surprise. Exactly. It's some hell of an achievement. Yeah, no, it's, yeah. Uh, it's been a, an amazing bonanza of science, too. Mm. All right, the surprise discovery of a 14-year-old supernova by an amateur Photographer, astrophotographer. Yeah, well, amateurs do find supernovae because uh, they're taking pictures of um, galaxies. This is called an anti-discovery, if you like. I'll explain why. Normally, uh, uh, I mean, people like Stu Parker, who we've talked about before, and down in Oxford and Canterbury, he found over 150 supernovae from his garden just by imaging lots and lots of galaxies every night and carefully comparing them with his previous pic- images. And so, oh, there's a new star there, and you know you know finding himself a supernova and he became very very good at it one of the world's best but the uh, but what's and so amateurs do find them and some find a lot but the uh, the curious thing about this one is this uh, amateur had taken a picture of a, a galaxy um, a nice photogenic galaxy it doesn't matter whether to watch one he'd then as you do you sort of start to look on the internet and look for other pictures of the galaxy, see what other people have done, like professional observatories, just to compare your image to their image. Hmm. Uh, and uh, so one of the <laughs> the image he found, he found a picture of his galaxy all right, and there's this big bright thing in the middle of the ocean on that image that isn't on his image. What? Um, now, the, there's a couple of things that could be. That could have been just a, an asteroid that happened to be in our solar system that happened to be going and passed in front of it when the image was taken. Uh, so they went back through all the uh, orbits of all the asteroids and established that no asteroid had actually would have been expected that bright to have been in that part of the sky. So that ruled that out. Um, and so now it's in the hand of professionals. It was obviously a picture. It was a picture picture taken from a big observatory by professionals, but they didn't actually check that they had the supernova on it from 14 years ago. Huh. And you know, 14 years ago, you know, a, an extra supernova discovery would have been quite important, particularly in a relatively nearby one. This is only 50 million light years. That's actually close. Is it? That's close for supernova outbursts. Okay. Um, so uh, yeah, so. <laughs> There you go. It's a sort of sort of a backward discovery. So he's credited with discovering the supernova because the professionals didn't look at his supernova there on their own images when they took it. Right. Reminds me of the non-discovery of Uranus, uh, or was it Uranus or, or Neptune? One of them. Um, when if Galileo or someone had, had oh, been yes. looking more closely, That's it would have right. been there. Yeah, yeah, it was Galileo was drawing a star field uh, with his tiny little telescope, the first telescope ever turned on the on the sky and, and so he was going around just drawing things and one star pattern that he drew somebody figured out what the stars were and realized that he'd actually accidentally drawn neptune thinking it was a star 
his telescope couldn't tell the difference. It couldn't see that Neptune right. was a planet. Had he gone back and done another drawing a week later, he would have probably r- realised that uh, this one of the objects had moved. Ah. So, or, you know, so, yeah, so he nearly discovered Neptune. All right, quite a nice thing, uh, although very much, I think, adapted for a human musical response. Discovery of supernovae from very, very early on, and it's the marimba sound. Every time one's discovered and it goes through time, and as expected, uh, you get a lot more towards the end than you have at the beginning in the 1950s. Yeah, I I think it it, it also shows the, the fact that you know, supernova discoveries came few and far between for a long time. Uh, and But now, with modern technology, there's projects that are imaging the sky every night. We're involved with one group uh, who have six telescopes looking for supernova. They're finding one a night now. And so, you know, there's not many escaping notice now. Um, and uh, there's probably a whole lot more going on in the cosmos. I reckon uh, there's about one a second going off in the cosmos Somewhere. Well, okay. One a second, and we're finding a tiny fraction of those yet. Well, set to yeah. oasis, uh, yeah. applicably it's fun to, to watch. Oasis's uh, champagne supernova. Uh, the marimba is a discovery of uh, supernova, but I think they clump them together at the end um, in hundreds, probably. And these supernova are all in distant galaxies. Right. We, we haven't had a supernova in our galaxy since 1604. Right. Predating the discovery of a telescope. So, uh, so we're feeling very left out. Okay. Well, here they are, the marimba noises that go along with Oasis. Cheers, Grant. And this is the Astronomy um, Audio of the Month. And the link, you can go and have a look at this and a listen. Uh, the direct link on the Weekend Variety Wireless webpage. Thank you very much. Thanks, Graham. How many special people change? How many lives to live is strange? Where we while we were getting high? Slowly walking down the hall, faster than a cannonball. Where we while we were getting high? Someday you will find me. Champagne supernova in the sky Someday you will find me Caught beneath the landslide In a champagne supernova A champagne supernova Cause people believe That they're gonna get away for the sun Weekend Variety Wireless. Okay, and admission. I'm frankly sceptical of these audio things. They've got nothing to do with audio, and they change into something that is audio and then makes out as though it's a piece of music by Oasis, as if it is. You know, and have a look at it if you like, and lots of others. Some of them are really good. Okay. Uh, Oh, yes.
Alert, alert. Daylight saving uh, begins overnight tonight. Spring, you put it forward, you spring forward. And shall we adopt the old English word for autumn, fall. In the fall, you fall back. So, overnight, an hour ahead. Daylight saving, yay! Feels a little more summery, doesn't it? As soon as it begins, even if you think it starts too early. New sport and weather next.